Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said, The greatest school that ever existed, it has been said, consisted of Socrates standing on a street corner with one or two interlocutors. If this remark strikes the average American as merely a bit of fancy, that is because education here today suffers from an unprecedented amount of aimlessness and confusion. This is not to suggest that education in the United States, as compared with other countries, fails to command attention and support. In our laws, we have endorsed it without qualification, and our provision for it, despite some claims to the contrary, has been on a lavish scale. But we behold a situation in which, as the educational plants become larger and more finely appointed, what goes on in them becomes more diluted, less serious, less effective in training mind and character, and correspondingly, what comes out of them becomes less equipped for the rigorous task of carrying forward an advanced civilization. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is education? What is the purpose of education? What has education to do with culture? And what has education to do with the individual? Today we continue our journey with Richard M. Weaver. Joining us again as our guide on this journey is Dr. Jim Tolman, rhetoric teacher at Wittenberg Academy and author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Dr. Tolman, great to have you back. It is great to be had, let me tell you. I am so pleased that we're doing this Exploring Weaver series, and I have a lot to say about where we're headed with it, and I think that our listeners will be really pleased and really motivated to check out Weaver some more. Today we're going to talk about education in the individual because it gives a decent foundation for what we are committed to at Wittenberg Academy in general. And it'll provide a segue to what we've put together in our rhetoric block of education. That's very unique. And as a matter of fact, I'm speaking on it on Thursday and Friday at the Society for Classical Learning Conference. And we have a very unique approach that I think is very substantive and it's motivated quite a bit by Richard Weaver, and it's also uh, based upon the writings of Richard Weaver to a really large extent. In this essay, Education and the Individual, is published in a collection of Weaver essays, like most of his stuff is, and that collection is called Life Without Prejudice and Other Essays. I have The Abolition of Man sitting in front of me. Oh, sure. And the abolition of man ties into that hideous strength by virtue of C.S. Lewis's prelude. He, he mentions right. that some of what he was talking about in the abolition of man pertains there. And every educator values the abolition of man a lot. And so in education in the individual, 
I think that's Weaver's equivalent of the abolition of man. I actually like C.S. Lewis's abolition of man better than the, the uh, education in the individual was written for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute back before that's what it was called. You know what it was oh, okay. initially called? We'll get uh -uh. into this okay. because individualism is in the title. Yeah. And it's, a, and it's one of the threads in this essay. Um, it was called the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. It's now known oh, as it's now known as the Intercollegiate Studies Institute because after several years they wanted to broaden it because what it was in the beginning was a direct counterattack against what was going on in academia in that time where communists were having a lot of influence and stressing the concept of mass man in which hmm. individuality is swallowed up. So you right. see Weaver critiquing the whole idea of mass culture producing a mass man for mass consumption, the correlation of the abolition of man, men, men without chests, and yeah. uh, what Weaver is talking about, the whole idea of human beings um, educated and to... Excellence. In Visions of Order, there's an essay called um, A Reconsideration Gnostic of Man? Education. Oh, no, Gnostic, Gnostic Education. Gnostic Education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or something like that. And uh, yeah. I haven't the read Gnostics it yet. The Gnostics of Education. The Gnostics yes, of Education. Yes. That's his follow. That's his continued critique of progressivism. Okay. Yeah, and so I haven't I'm, read I'm that excited in years, about that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good, all right. that's a good uh, companion essay. And he had a lot to say about pedagogy, but in a nutshell, it was that we are created in God's image. We are, we have special status in creation and educate that education is what best, which equips us for excellence in our humanity. And so it's just, you know, it's straight up, classical liberal arts education and it's uh in the western tradition he celebrates all of that and he was trying to protect it from two primary schools of thought the progressives and the general semanticists jocelyn realizing that what prompted this exploring weaver series was the fact that we rely so heavily on Richard Weaver's teachings in our rhetoric block of instruction, and we wanted to lay that out, but then we're finding very quickly that much of what we've focused on in terms of being a doctor of culture, the idea of culture, the cultural role of rhetoric, the importance of cultural freedom, these are all taking us into discussions that transcend, and this is how Weaver works every time. These discussions transcend what we're doing in our humble little school, and they speak to our cultural uh, uh, situation that we find ourselves in today. So I'm really excited for where we're headed in this discussion in terms of how relevant it is to what's happening on our streets today. And 
it doesn't surprise me at all that you're finding other really potentially profitable threads that we could pursue in future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, today we're discussing education in the individual, and that was published in Life Without Prejudice and Other Essays, which is a very difficult volume to get a hold of, by the way. It's been out of print for a long time. But another really worthwhile essay in that collection is called Up From Liberalism. Up From Liberalism was Weaver's testimonial of how he became a conservative thinker. He started off, like many people in his region of North Carolina, and he was schooled in Kentucky when he got his undergraduate degrees, that were socialists because it was vogue in academia in that time. But he realized he didn't really like those people very much. When he would go to the meetings and try to get involved and stuff, he just didn't like them as people. But when he went to Vanderbilt to start his graduate work, he got hooked up with John Crow Ransom and Donald Davidson and the Southern Agrarians. And he realized he really liked them and their vision, which was precisely what we're going to be talking about today, the kind of vision that's grounded in the Western tradition. Thinking back to our previous episode and thinking about how Weaver laid out for us uh, the decline of Western civilization, it seems to follow very naturally that... In order to move forward then, and, you know, thinking about being a doctor of of culture, and so you've diagnosed the problem, now you need to prescribe a solution that we would then take up education. And at the beginning of this essay that we are taking up today, Education and the Individual, Weaver seems to take great pains to distinguish man from all other creatures. In a discussion about education, why is this an important starting point? Well, because as he says, education is a process by which the individual is developed into something better than he would have been without it. The aim of education is to make humans more humane. And that happens in the Western tradition through a number of time-tested disciplines that help enculturate individuals in the ideals of reasoned discourse, logical thought, um, virtue and ethics, and theology. And when you put all of those studies together, they're supposed to equip students for success in life, for success in vocation, and ultimately for eternal life. In the opening monologue, I read the opening paragraph of this essay. And you had given us this paragraph as a teaser at the end of the previous episode. But that la- the last sentence of that paragraph 
But we behold a situation in which, as the educational plants become larger and more finely appointed, what goes on in them becomes more diluted, less serious, less effective in training mind and character, and correspondingly, what comes out of them becomes less equipped for the rigorous tasks of carrying forward an advanced civilization. And you think about that in relation to what you just said in terms of man, uh, humans being more humane through education, that, that this isn't something that just happens, that education isn't something, and, and Weaver talks about this in his essay, right, that, that man doesn't just bloom and he doesn't just flower spontaneously, that there's something that, that goes into that. Yeah, what you were just giving voice to would be a romanticist view of education. And that's a very popular uh, approach to early childhood education these days. Um, the Emilia Reggio approach, um, Montessori approach. It's when, they, when people say child-centered, they're talking about uh, children are little flowers that need to blossom on their own and educators become facilitators to help children uh, pursue their curiosities. And intellectual curiosity is really good. I, I don't doubt that. And there, there's some good in that. But there's a big difference between that and a catechetical, if I can call it, approach to education in which you lay a theoretical foundation, and then you build on that foundation. You give students an opportunity to practice what they're learning until their habits are developed and their, their loves are cultivated. And that's a well-ordered mind. And it's an orderly, and frankly, it is a assertive and active approach to educating young people that presupposes a hierarchy in which teachers are the teachers and learners are the learners. And so you can see why that would be out of step with that kind of approach. Now, Weaver's objective in education in the individual was to show the contrast between education in the Western tradition, which, by the way, Melanchthon, Bugenhagen, Luther, and company were all about. Those were the church schools that they were interested in cultivating and developing and supporting. They were based on liberal arts learning. Um, you can learn all about that in Dr. Korchok's book. At any rate, in Education in the Individual, Weaver's trying to demonstrate why progressive education is so out of keeping, not only with the Western tradition, but the aim of the Western tradition, which is to make human beings more human, fully excellence in their humanity. And this all presupposes a Christian humanism from in our worldview. There's a way to approach this kind of education that's based on secular humanism, but we, we don't bother with that. Now, it's essential to the Western tradition of, of education that we assume original sin. Yes, and so does Weaver. I think in the introduction to Ideas Have Consequences, we did 
just light on momentarily the idea that we have to revive a tragic view of life, right? Yes. In order to really fully embrace it. When he says that, a tragic view of life, he's talking about the fall. He's talking about we have to get back to, we have to stop viewing human beings from a romantic point of view or from an animalistic point of view, which is where Darwinism gets you. He, he did, when, when Weaver, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, I apologize, but when we talk about being a doctor of culture, what his program was, was to identify schools of thought in his day that he perceived to be uh, detrimental to the cultivation of excellent human beings. And those were the general semanticists, the progressives, the Darwinians, and people of that ilk. That quote from Ideas Have Consequences was, hysterical optimism will prevail until the world again admits the existence of tragedy. And it Mm -hmm. cannot admit the existence of tragedy until it again distinguishes between good and evil. Yes. Do you know what hysterical optimism is? That's a really key weaverism. Hysterical optimism in Ideas Have Consequences represents that point of view that is associated with the Whig theory of social development, that in every way, every day, we're getting better and better. And he calls it hysterical optimism because it's not grounded in the reality of social decay, the tearing of the social fabric, the culture within which healthy human beings are enculturated, you know, that sort of thing. So he makes a great case that if you want to focus on material and technological progress, sure, that's true. We're getting better in every way. But if you focus on the condition of humanity, their souls, then you have another proposition. And that's so key in thinking about the different theories of education that are out there. Weaver uses the term progressive. And for those who have not yet read the essay, he always puts quotations around the word as if to qualify it somehow. Can you help us dig into this word progressive? First of all, before I get into this, I want to focus on a quotation in the middle of the essay. It's on page 53 in the edition I'm looking at, but like I said, that's hard to get a hold of. But preliminarily, let me just point out that what Weaver does in education and the individual is really very much related to what C.S. Lewis was trying to communicate in The Abolition of Man. I happen to think C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man eclipses this essay, but this is only one essay that Weaver wrote for the benefit of the readership of the Intercollegiate Review, which was the academic organ of the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, ISI, now known as the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. They're the ones who sell Weaver's visions of order. At any rate, 
he wrote this essay to give clear voice to what was happening in education that was planting seeds of societal destruction. And so when C.S. Lewis talks about education after the order of the green book, he's talking about progressivist education. And when he talks about men without chests, he's talking about we need to have education that's going to cultivate character in students. Virtues need to be lauded and embraced. And people with strong character, strong Christian character, need to be our aim in education, which they are, in fact, explicitly the aim of education in Wittenberg Academy. So Weaver and C.S. Lewis had very similar themes in these works. All right, back to page 53 in the... Regnery Press version of Life Without Prejudice and Other Essays. Introduction by Alessio Vivas. If this had been stressed at some length... Uh, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. Thus, with amazing audacity, the progressive educators have turned their backs upon those subjects which throughout civilized history have provided the foundations of culture and of intellectual distinction. If this has been stressed at some length, it is in order to deny the claim that, quote, progressive education fosters individualism. It may have the specious look of doing so because it advocates personal experience as a teacher and the release of the natural tendencies of the person. Yet, it does this on a level which does not make for true individualism. Individualism in the true sense is a matter of the mind and the spirit. It means the development of the person, not the well-adjusted automaton. What the progressivists really desire to produce is the smooth individual, adapted to some favorite scheme of collectivized living, not the person of strong convictions, of refined sensibility, and of deep personal feeling of direction in life. Any doubt of this may be removed by noting how many progressive educators are in favor of more state activity in education. Under the cloak of devotion to the public schools, they urge an ever greater state control, the final form of which would be, in our country, a federal educational system directed out of Washington and used to instill the collectivist political notions, which are the primary motives of this group. That was before the Department of Education. I continue to be convinced that Weaver was a prophet when it comes to education. <laughs> I frequently have students voice that same intrigue. Weaver was insightful. He had a tendency to think on the root of things and ponder enduring truths, and it shows. You brought up the idea of progressive education is concerned mostly with a well-adjusted automaton, I believe is the, the phrase. Yeah. And I just landed on the quote, 
individualism in the true sense is a matter of the mind and the spirit. It means the development of the person, not the well-adjusted automaton. What is the difference? Okay. I just opened to the page prior to what I was just reading where he sets this up. So I'll just read that too. This new education is not designed for man as an immortal soul. Can you see why I would say he, he is a Christian? There's no doubt about it, but he doesn't write the way an overtly Christian author would write because his target audience was the thinking citizen, right? Right. But I mean, he, he talks this way about human beings all the time. And again, Weaver's primary thrust was to identify schools of thought that would denigrate the special status of human beings. And so he's a Christian humanist in the very robust sense. Okay, so this new education is not designed for man as an immortal soul, nor is it designed to help him measure up to any ideal standard. The only goal which it professes to have in view is adjustment to life. If we examine this phrase carefully, we will see that it, like a number of others that these educational imposters have been wont to use, is rather cleverly contrived to win a rhetorical advantage. Quote, adjustment has an immediate kind of appeal because no one likes to think of himself as being maladjusted. That suggests failure, discomfort, and other unpleasant experiences. And furthermore, adjustment to life may be taken by the unwary as, as suggesting a kind of victory over life, success and pleasure and all that sort of thing. But as soon as we begin to examine the phrase both carefully and critically, we find that it contains booby traps. Okay, so he then goes on to critique their notion of adjusting well in life. And he says, when we begin to study their actual lives, we find that these were filled with toil, strenuousness, anxiety, self-sacrifice, and sometimes a good bit of friction with their environment. So being well-adjusted, uh, the way we would put it today, is, is overrated. If by adjusting to your environment, you're talking in a very material fashion because sacrifice and toil and difficulties are what shape character and give give one a chest to put it in lewis terms this is the very concluding line freedom and goodness finally merge in this conception the unfree man cannot be good because virtue is a state of character concerned with choice and if this latter is taken away there's simply no way for goodness to assert itself. And that goes for sacrifice and what we were just talking about and toil. The moment we judge the smallest action in terms of right and wrong, we are stepping up to a plane where the good is felt as an imperative, even though it can be disobeyed. When education is seen as culminating in this, we can cease troubling about its failure to accomplish this or that incidental objective. An awareness of the order of the goods will take care of many things which are now felt as unresolvable difficulties. And we will have advanced once more as far as Socrates when he made the young Athenians aware that the unexamined life is not worth living. 
there's no guarantee of a life of ease and luxury. And not to say that... In which world are you talking about? I'm thinking 2020 America. Yeah, we're going to have trouble. We are literally going to have trouble the moment we open our mouths. And it's not going to go away anytime soon because progressive education has been very successful. Yes, it has. And so has the radical left who made it one of their objectives to take over public education 40 years ago. Now look what's coming out of the colleges and universities. Little Marxists. A little bit past where you were reading, Weaver says the education of the, quote, progressives does not do this. Um, it, It doesn't take into account pain, evil, passion, tragedy, the limits of human power. Yep, all of that. It it educates for a world conceived as without serious conflicts. And this is the propaganda of ignorance. Yes. No true believer in freedom can contemplate this prospect with anything but aversion. If there is one single condition necessary to the survival of truth and of values in our civilization, it is that the educational system be left independent enough to espouse these truths and values regardless of the political winds of doctrine of the moment. Weaver says education's first loyalty is to the truth, and the educator must be left free to assert as sometimes he needs to, unpopular or unappreciated points of view. It seems this notion has been lost today. Is that true? You know, I I have the advantage of looking at this uh, Regnery version, and that and many other quotations are in italics, and my eyes hit right upon it as you were introducing it. So if you don't mind, this is a short one. Education thus has a major responsibility to what we think of as objectively true, but it also has a major responsibility to the person. We may press this even further and say that education must regard two things as sacred, the truth and the personality that is to be brought into contact with the truth. No education can be civilizing and humane unless it is a respecter of persons. And by he's he's playing with the idea of respecter of persons. He means respectful of personhood. I just wanted to piggyback with that Weaver quote on how you set that up. That's great. Just in terms of the teacher being muzzled, in terms of this this idea, as as Weaver said, education's first loyalty is to the truth, and the educator must be left free to assert unpopular or unappreciated points of view. Number one, why is that important? Why must the educator assert, if needed, unpopular (laughs) or unappreciated points of view? Do, Do we really have to explicitly talk about that in this day and age? I mean, what do you see on the news? What are these Antifas in Antifistan? They're disallowing any kind of dissenting viewpoint, any kind of traditional viewpoint, 
anyone who believes in fundamental truths, the Western tradition. I mean, if you've seen Ben Stein's movie, he did a really good expose of what's going on in college campuses. Prager U with Adam Carolla, they did a great movie just recently about the same thing. So this is well documented that one of the first things that happened when snowflakes started exercising power and essentially blackmailing the administration in a lot of these universities, they disallowed dissenting viewpoints on campus. So every day you've got people lamenting the double standards for what can and can't be said on campuses these days. And they have little hidden camera exposés of these neo-fascists, you know, harassing them for challenging their orthodoxy, their liberal orthodoxy. When you think about this in light of the fact that challenge and conflict and all of that forms us, you think about what it takes to purify precious metals. You have to heat them up. It has to be heated to such a high degree that the impurities are removed. You can't have a pure metal without, for lack of a better term, damaging the original material that went into the fire, right? It's, it's, it has yes. to go, a, a, a precious metal <clears throat> has to go through the fire before its true worth is revealed. It's kind of fun, isn't it? That metal and metal sound so similar. Testing one's metal is a pretty good analogy to how precious metals are refined and purified. And that's right. why that parable is utilized in Scripture. And so, yeah, I guess where we're at in our conversation right now is an eyes-wide-open view of how we're preparing our children, and in my case, grandchildren, to go out into a world that's hostile to our worldview. And I used to try to hold out hope. I just had a good conversation on Facebook with one of my former students about what I taught him six, seven, eight years ago about how you engage in the marketplace of ideas, rhetorically, the ethics of engaging people in mutual respect and giving a charitable interpretation of their point of view and that sort of thing. And I said, hey, a lot of time has passed in our society since then. And ideally, that's the kind of dialogue you would engage in with people who, A, believe in such a thing as truth, objective truth, right? And who believe in logic and are interested in maintaining civil discourse, et cetera, et cetera. We're really not there anymore. So some people I just don't even try to engage because it, it really will get nowhere. I'll just end up getting shouted down or 
someone will spray pepper spray on me or whop me over the head with a sign or worse. So, you know, I don't go out into the public arena trying to engage people like that. That's silly. It's a fool's errand. So in terms of our precious children who we want to refine and prepare and harden, frankly, for battle, because they're not going to be able to avoid it. And we don't want them, obviously, to succumb to the pressures. But all of these things that we're discussing out of Richard Weaver and the things we're teaching in our rhetoric block are designed to give them wisdom and eloquence so that they can, A, defend the faith, B, cultivate the faith in themselves and others, and also to stand firm. And so in order to do this, you need the tools of formation. Weaver brings up the idea of disciplines. Mm -hmm. And he says, for discipline denote something that has the power to shape and to control in accordance with objective standards. It connotes the power to repress and discourage those impulses which interfere with the proper development of the person. A disciplined body is one that is developed and trained to do what its owner needs it to do. A disciplined mind is one that is developed and trained to think in accordance with the necessary laws of thought and which therefore can provide its owner with true causal reasoning about the world. A person with a disciplined will is trained to want the right thing and to reject the bad out of his own free volition. Discipline involves the idea of the negative, and this is another proof that man does not unfold merely naturally like a flower. He unfolds when he is being developed by a sound educational philosophy according to known lines of truth and error of right and wrong. And then he follows this quote with a walk through essential disciplines that have formed scholars for millennia. And as I was reading that, I thought, well, he must have looked at the graduation requirements for Wittenberg Academy when he wrote this. Um, Never mind that (laughs) Wittenberg Academy didn't exist at the time. But in all seriousness... Can you walk us through the essential disciplines for an educated human? Well, it starts with the trivium and quadrivium. I think our listeners should be more than familiar with those. And then in the process of mastering those disciplines, they're also supposed to learn a good deal of history theology, ethics, politics, in the Aristotelian sense of politics, which is essentially how to relate rightly to your fellows, you know, injustice and truth and so forth. And uh, literature, and literature serves to cultivate virtue. We talked about that last time. And that... I think that sums it up. I mean, that's a that's plenty. What is the danger of excising any of these disciplines 
from the formation of scholars. If a parent comes to me and says, my child is going to be such and such, he doesn't really need logic and rhetoric and he doesn't really need to study language. Really, he just needs math and science. What is the danger of, of excising any portion of these disciplines? By being exposed to these disciplines and learning them classically, which is to say learning not only the how and the what, but the why and the wherefore, the theory of them, it disciplines the mind, it orders the loves, it teaches you how to be pained by what you ought to and to love what you ought to, and it orients you toward God and helps you discern and decipher what it is that's important in life so that you yourself understand why you believe what you believe and then in turn, you can, in wisdom and eloquence, share that with your neighbor for his improvement. I think that's pretty much the essence of Christian charity, as Luther wrote it in On the Freedom of the Christian. And if I can take that and distill it down even further, it allows one to live the examined life. Exactly. Because the unexamined life is not worth the living. If you go through life without understanding, you are like a sow that lives to eat, sleep, fornicate, and defecate. And when you have a critical mass in society that leads an unexamined life, you have a city of sows, as Plato would put it. Which, incidentally, is why Weaver went after Darwinism because of the image of man that's presupposed in that viewpoint. Dr. Tolman, you had brought up earlier the quote that education must regard two things as sacred, the truth and the personality that is to be brought into contact with it. No education can be civilizing and humane unless it is a respecter of persons. We've briefly touched on the disciplines required to form a young person for the examined life. How does rhetoric, specifically how you teach rhetoric, how does that serve as a capstone, if I may? How does that serve as a capstone in the formation of a young person? Look. As I reflect on my 30 plus years of teaching rhetorical arts, I had the great fortune when I signed on with Wittenberg Academy to design a block of rhetoric instruction that in my experience captures precisely what Weaver's talking about and what is the essence of cultivating wisdom and eloquence in the Western tradition. So in a nutshell, rhetoric one, rhetoric two, and rhetoric three first lay a foundation in understanding rhetorical arts. And then in rhetoric two, cultivates the left brain 
skill set of argumentation and debate. And that's where we really pondered dialectic quite extensively. And then rhetoric three is a class in advanced public speaking that cultivates the right brain skill sets of appeals to imagination, using language figuratively to paint vivid imagery, which stirs the emotions and moves the will toward the good. And so you put that all together and you've introduced students to rhetorical theory, rhetorical criticism, and a lot of my rhetorical theory, by the way, focuses on the ethics of rhetoric, which I derive for the most part from Richard Weaver or what I learned of Richard Weaver from my mentor when I was in my bachelor's program and on the debate club. And so teaching about rhetorical theory and the ethics of rhetoric and the cultural role of rhetoric and then teaching how to think dialectically, to follow an argument to its logical conclusion and reversing that process, thinking upstream so you can identify the presuppositions upon which the argument rests, even when they're not stated explicitly. When they're implied, you can ferret out those presuppositions and that gets you down to the core values upon which the argument rests so that you can shine the light of truth on them and articulating your position, arguing one's case in court of law, in a moral arena. Actually, my the highlight of my Rhetoric 2 class is a unit on casuistry. I would think pastors would be interested to hear that. We learn casuistry in the context of arguing a case on a medical ethics committee where opinions are divided about what is the right thing to do on behalf of the patient. So we do that, and then I have the kids write a paper as though they're an ethics consultant to a regional medical center, and they have to make a moral argument, identify the crux of the matter, and then defend their position. Anyway, that happens in Rhetoric 2, and then ultimately in Rhetoric 3, we return to what we discovered in Rhetoric 1 about the canon of style, the classical canon of style that comes from rhetorical theory, the classical canon of style, figures of speech, and painting vivid imagery. And then ultimately, because it is a senior level class, they learn then how to cultivate their own voice and they get to try on, so to speak, an eloquence that suits their style, their view of things, what they hold to be most important, and helps them become more articulate and more eloquent. And so ultimately, then they have to do what you just recorded and posted and talked to them about on this very podcast, their original oration, which is a capstone exercise, which follows from everything I just mentioned. There has to be an element of humility in the formation of young people to live an examined life. Because number one, you have to admit that you're a sinner. Number two, you have to admit that you don't know everything. 
You stand and, on the shoulder of giants. Right. And you can't get to that capstone without having been equipped with knowledge and understanding about which and from which to speak. I really no, want to great. stress that in the process of those three semesters of thought and praxis, they have to not only figure out what they believe about the research they're doing as they're formulating their argument, but they listen to other people give speeches and interact and react to other people's speeches. And there's a whole lot of self-examination going on. And that self-examination is the result of mixing it up in the realm of ideas audibly. So my focus in my uh, Society for Classical Learning uh, presentations is going to be on rediscovering the oral dimension of speech communication approach to rhetoric as opposed to simply teaching students how to write a clear essay. Now, I don't want to demean that process. It's super important. But how do we most often interact with neighbor? We speak. Yeah. The title of this essay is Education and the Individual. And we have spoken at length about this during our time together today. But just to bring it all together, what is the difference between the individual as Weaver is explaining it and what we see today in self-worship? When people in the day of Richard Weaver and Russell Kirk and when William F. Buckley had just written God and Man at Yale were interested in trying to influence academia by counteracting the leftism that was really starting to gain a toehold through progressive education. They formulated, and I'm not saying that Kirk and Weaver and uh, Buckley all helped organize it, but whoever it was, I think Henry Regnery was one of them, but Weaver was really involved. They called it the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists because communism was very popular in that time. And the way progressive education was focusing on this adjustment that we talked about earlier was adjusting people to fit into mass society. So Weaver also, for, for example critiqued the way Madison Avenue equipped people for being good consumers in a mass communication kind of economic uh, world, consumerist world. And so in that same vein, he was also shining the light on how a lot of the egalitarian viewpoint and the communist worldview was creating a mass education 
to cultivate a mass man. And so true individualism was being lost in the process. And in order to find human excellence, in order to achieve human excellence, a person has to understand their individual calling, their relationship toward God, their relationship toward the other, and how they fit into the whole is important as well, into the the communion. But without distinction and hierarchy, values, and initiative, none of that is possible. And so that's why Weaver wrote about the things that he did. And when he talks about education and the individual, his concern primarily is to counteract the emphasis on mass man, which are men without chests. You just brought up distinction and hierarchy. If I may, episode six is going to take us back to ideas have consequences. And in particular, Weaver's essay, Distinction and Hierarchy. Dr. Tolman, set us up for our pondering of Weaver's distinction and hierarchy. Oh, it's so important today. And it is something that I've referred to time and again to help my students understand that although it's true that if you value place, that has the attendant difficulty of enabling someone to put a person into their place, the flip side of that is understanding who we are and our charges at Wittenberg Academy, one of their primary vocations is to understand who they are as a person and who they want to become in Christ. And so a large part of that is understanding place and vocation, right? Station is what we speak of it as in our Lutheran theology. So distinction and hierarchy speaks to that. And it is the most trenchant, cogent, and lucid critique of egalitarianism that I can even imagine. And it's included in my uh, top 10 Weaver list for the manner in which Weaver discusses the implications for culture and the enculturation process, so to speak, of the project of the levelers. The levelers are the people who push egalitarianism. And we have those in hordes today. I can't wait. Dr. Tallman, thank you. I'm looking forward to distinction and hierarchy next time. We'll talk to you then. Jocelyn, I'm looking forward to that as well. And we're at the juncture in our series now where we're getting into the essays of Weaver that I actually utilize in my classroom teaching quite a bit. So this will be, I think the listeners will find it more and more substantive as we go. Excellent. Until next time, thanks for joining us on the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time 
on the Wittenberg Hour. <laughs>